0: Hi, welcome to this special edition of a CIO live stream. I am joining you here from the global headquarters of the world's best capitalized bank in one of the world's best capitalized countries. And uh, we are talking about China. We're talking about the United States. We're talking about the United States and China or China and the United States, however you want to slice it but we are so pleased to have Kelvin Tay with us today uh, from Singapore. And Kelvin, we want to start off with you telling us about what we need to know about China, lots of things, but let's start with
1: how China's dealing with COVID. Um, well, China has a very different approach uh, from the rest of the world. They have a zero tolerance approach. And therefore, whenever they discover cases actually happening in a particular city or province, they're approach is basically to lock it up and prevent that from actually spreading. And they've been really successful so far. Uh, I think in total total number of infections that we have in China since the start of the pandemic is at about 95,000. And at this point in time, they've actually vaccinated close to 76% of the population. So that basically means that um, the number of infections have actually dropped to um, single digits in the past one week or so. So China has actually come off relatively unscathed from this whole um, episode, um, fortunately.
0: Well, you know, you called it a success, and I think uh, I would call it a success from a humanitarian perspective. What is the impact that we're seeing on the Chinese economy from these policies?
1: Yeah, well, they were the first to get into um, the—they were the first to actually uh, get affected by the pandemic, the first to go into a recession and the very first to actually come out of it. Um, and in January, February this year, the Chinese government and the, the central bank started to actually e- um, tighten credit um, or normalize credit back to its uh, pre-COVID-19 levels um, to prevent uh, the economy from overheating. And I think based on the current data that we're getting from the economy itself, um, they probably tightened a little bit too much. And as a, as a result of that, we're starting to see uh, some of the uh, um, leading indicators actually um, sliding down. So what we think is going to happen is that they are likely to actually start to ease credit growth again in the third and the fourth quarter of this year and potentially they might actually cut the reserve requirement ratio at the end of the year but ironically they've also benefited from this because of the fact that with the infections raging right now in Southeast Asia a lot of the manufacturers have actually expanded their productions in China because in Southeast Asia a lot of the workers are sick and they can't go back and therefore production is actually affected
0: So one of the things you mentioned is how China is managing and regulating its fiscal and monetary policy through this crisis like it always does. There's another side to uh, what China is managing and regulating around uh, public companies and data and things. Walk us through that a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, I think if, if we were to take the easy way out, we will probably say, you know what, that, that regulatory tightening stuff is actually happening. Let's stay out and not invest in it. Um, but if we were to actually do a little bit of investigation on our own and understand the situation a little better, uh, we can actually feel a lot more comforted. Now, one of the reasons why they're doing it right now is the fact that you know this year for the very first time in, I would say, 10 to 11 years, um, the Chinese economy is gonna grow way above its target without them even trying. For example, the government's target is actually 6% growth a year. This year, we forecast the Chinese economy to come in anywhere between 8 to 8.3%. So they can afford to tighten regulations um, and yet have the economy slow down but still be above their target. So that's one reason why. The second reason why they're doing this is because next year at the in October, President Xi Jinping is going to come to the end of his second five-year term and he's very likely to go for a third term. And therefore, he has this small window of opportunity to actually uh, uh, align the policies around uh, what we call common prosperity and on a longer term basis to actually project China to become a modern socialist economy. So in, it, so when you, keep in, when you put all that into perspective here, you can understand why they're doing it right now because you want to get it done over the next five to six months. And then give time for the corporates, for the companies, to actually settle down before you actually head into the all-important political transition in October next year. Um, with regards to the policies, some of the policies that we've come up with um, in terms of the regulatory tightening is because of the fact that they are actually they are trying to prevent income disparity from widening. And case in point is basically the after-school tutoring um, sector. Now you know that in, in East Asian societies, in any society that is based on Confucianist philosophy. The tiger mother exists, and the tiger mother roars, right? So what the Chinese are doing is that they're trying to tame the tiger mother, right? So to speak. So in China right now, um, if the the number of families that that have an annual income between 100,000 to 500,000 yuan per annum is basically about 400 uh, about 100 million uh, um, um, families, and then about 400 million families are below 100,000 yuan. Now access to higher quality jobs and quality education is purely from Um, how good or how well you do in your exams so that basically means that if the parents can afford it they spend as much as they can on their kids um tutoring sessions after school tutoring and therefore it becomes an arms race and it becomes really unhealthy because if you pay a uh, thousand yuan a month you can attend as many lessons as you want and of course if you have a if you have a tiger mother she's going to force you to attend uh, to attend as many lessons as you possibly can and that's really unhealthy because that increases the disparity between the rich who can afford it and the not so rich who can't afford it between the city areas and the rural areas between the tier one cities and the tier three tier four cities. and that's the reason why they actually had to do that but of course, they can't really replicate this across the other industries because if they do that, they run the risk of not being able to meet some of the other objectives. Like for example, in the tech sector, China wants to be a technologically advanced country in four years time, made in China 2025. If they keep tightening regulations on the technology sector, they will not be able to meet that because the entrepreneurs will probably then take a step backwards and not invest in R&D and capital expenditure.
0: Well, you, uh, I'm just sitting here thinking about like, so because, Chinese parents care so much about uh, their children's education. They're sacrificing everything for that, and the government wants to make sure that it's a more equal playing field in achieving this societal and family goal. Pretty hard to uh, pretty hard to knock it, and I look forward to Salida telling us what the U.S. is doing uh, in, in that regard as well. Uh, but. Before we get to that, I mean, I think uh, you've highlighted like some of the things where China is putting its national policy behind uh, things that may be perceived, at least in the short term, as negatives for the market. But at the same time, isn't that same social policy and and uh, government action being uh, pushed to help other businesses? In other words, are there opportunities that are coming out of this? Is
1: there the other side of this coin? Absolutely. I think the other policies that they've actually been pushing is basically to actually break up some of the oligopolistic and monopolistic uh, um, sectors, right? And of course, the tech sector has actually developed into a kind of an oligopoly. Uh, It's dominated by four or five companies. Uh, and again, on a medium to longer term basis, that's really unhealthy because if they become price setters, uh, they will be they will not be incentivized to actually invest more uh, into R and D and into technology itself, right? And that, on a medium to longer term basis, is actually negative for the uh, for the Chinese economy. Um, but on a short term basis, the regulatory tightening will certainly be disruptive. Regulatory tightening in any economy, I would argue, is always disruptive on a short-term basis, but on a medium to longer-term basis, it makes the economy a lot more healthy, a lot more competitive, and a lot more receptive to international investors in, in, in that sense. So I think on a short-term basis, we have to actually stomach this. Um, we are waiting for further for clarity, and I think the clarity will come over the next... Three to four months, and that's one of the reasons why we're neutral on China. We're not overweight on China right now. We're neutral uh, because we think that we need more clarity before we can actually put China back onto our most preferred list.
0: Okay, now let's uh, open the discussion up and turn to Salida, and I think uh, you know, so- Salida, uh, you you've been. I know you've had a lot of conversations on the U.S.-China uh, relationship. And maybe you can you can tell us a little bit about this because it's been a source of volatility in the past U.S. administration, and it's in a way shaping up uh, similarly, perhaps uh, for this administration in the United States. How how do you see it?
2: Yes, thank you, Mark. So uh, yes, yeah, certainly a, a important source of volatility here um, uh, for the markets now. Under the Trump administration, the US China relationship really entered the spotlight for the first time for many investors, with tariffs and sanctions really becoming a major source of uncertainty. Um, And if you uh, maybe move to uh, my first chart here, um, you know. We, you can see how this started to reshape how we were uh, importing goods. So I think the consensus with Biden taking office, uh, you know, was not necessarily that U.S.-China tensions would completely go away, but that we would get more certainty and more ongoing dialogue between the two countries, which would help take the temperature down, um, you know, a, a few notches. Now, given these expectations. Uh, I think it's clear that many people have been surprised with just what has transpired over the course of this year so far, right? The Anchorage meetings in March proved to be contentious and U.S. Deputy Secretary of State when the Sherman's China visit in July, there's really little to ease concerns on the direction of, of this bilateral relationship. So I think it's, I think it's clear that uh, no substantial improvement in relations is around the corner at this time, especially with President Biden and Xi Jinping both really facing their own domestic Political test in November next year when the US midterm elections and also the 20th National Party Congress takes place. In the United States, um, as we all know, a th- tough stance on China is really one of the only issues that has bipartisan support. So being perceived as soft here would not necessarily be beneficial politically. Now, I, I, you know. Mark, I just want to make one thing clear. Um, you know, we don't really see this U.S.-China relationship evolving into um, another, you know, the second coming of the Cold War. Uh, I think the difference here is that two countries have very deep economic ties. So. Any worst case scenarios, like a sudden full decoupling, uh, is not likely in our view. Both the United States and China are really benefiting from the ongoing free flow of goods and also of financial and human capital. So not only is a breakup between two countries is impractical, but their interconnection in some areas even looks um, you know, set to grow in coming years. So I think it's really important now to think of this as an all-or-nothing outcome, where the two countries either become best friends or enter a full-fledged military or economic conflict. I think as you alluded to uh, in, in your question, um, you know, it, it, it's a conflict relationship, and in March of this year, U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, I think summed it up really nicely how the u.s administration you know will approach china when he stated that this relationship will be competitive uh, when it should be collaborative when it can be and of course adversarial when it must be um, so if you look at um the second chart here that uh, our team put together you know, we've used this as a framework to you know, categorize the different areas of the relationship, for example, if you take the topic of trade right now, this certainly has collaborative aspects, for example, think of the billions of dollars of opportunities US and Chinese corporations have been uh, taking advantage of it can also be quite competitive, you know, think of the trade of semiconductors, uh, which is always in the headlines and of course. Adversarial, too, because, um, you know, from that perspective, think of the tariff war during the Trump administration. So I think this is really a good lens to use in order to think about the overall uh, relationship.
0: Well, look, I think this is a great lens. Uh, a lot of people won't think it's a great lens because there's so many different categories. But that's why I think it's a great lens, because it breaks it down. I mean, I, I would say, you know, the... the say whatever you want about the Trump policy, but as you said at the start, being quote unquote tough on China plays well with the US electorate. And so the Trump administration boiled that down in a way to tariffs. And then, uh, so that was, it was very simple. It was one topic. And then on other things, human rights and other things, there was not that much going on. And so, you know, now as you highlight here, it's more complex. And so the tough question that I'm going to ask you is what is the United States actually trying to achieve with whatever China policy it develops? And that's, I don't, I mean, I would love to hear what you have to say about that, but an, a simpler version of that question is, what is what are, what are we likely to see as a next action, say around steel tariffs or, or whatever, that is you know, just the, the action that we can point to without trying to claim that it is the insight into the ultimate goal of US policy.
2: Yes, um, so you're right, I mean, I think President Biden is under pressure uh, from a lot of businesses to remove some of the Um, tariffs imposed by uh, President Trump uh, and then, uh, but of course, you know, there's a possibility of even more tariffs. So um, maybe, you know, let's talk about that for a second. I think with the pandemic still not, you know, under control in the United States, President Biden has had to focus his attention on, you know, controlling the virus as well as resulting economic impact. Meanwhile, um, I think President Biden knows that right now is his best window to pass um some of his most desired legislation this includes obviously the bipartisan infrastructure deal which would not stand you know as much of a chance once political party divides become even more apparent ahead of the midterm elections and in 2022. but i think once these elections approach any further major domestic legislation is unlikely to pass and then biden will likely turn his focus back to international affairs like the U.S.-China relationship. And the pressure from, like you said, domestic business groups to improve U.S. trade relations with China and to remove those previously imposed tariffs like um, we mentioned is is really real. But I think, like I mentioned earlier, any type of action uh, that could be perceived as a soft stance on China, I think is unlikely by the present in the near future. Uh, Democratic Party has often led the push for, um, you know, punitive actions against China in relation to trade. Um, the polls, I think, indicate that voters want, want a tough stance. So even though we don't think new tariffs will be a key part of Biden's toolkit, um, you know, in the future, uh, we don't think a broad-based removal of you know, previous tariffs is likely. I think going forward, uh, we would expect Biden to take a multilateral approach that includes working uh, with the US allies to put maybe more pressure on China. I think we've already seen evidence of this approach when when the US and many allies issued statements for aimed at China on the cyber front. So I think if we take it as a whole and summarize it, you know, the past tariffs are unlikely to go away, but uh, Biden will really continue to use other tools going forward, um, uh, you know, is a reflection of their tough stance.
0: Okay, well, another element of this tough stance is putting certain companies on a clock to be delisted in the United States if they don't meet certain requirements. Walk us through that a little bit and, and how investors should be thinking about that.
2: Yeah, so, uh, you're right. Delistings have uh, substituted in for tariffs as one of the you know, biggest concerns for investors. Uh, especially as it relates to U.S.-China conflict, um, but maybe to clarify, you know, the threats to Chinese equities are actually, you know, twofold. Um, there is bipartisan legislation and executive actions coming from the U.S. Uh, but domestically, right, Chinese regulators are also tightening the rules for local private companies listing overseas, in particular, the um, variable interest entities, so the VIE structure um, that allows for such uh, listings to happen. Now, both countries, um, I think their recent regulatory strokes are you know, likely to drive the homecoming of Chinese ADRs. Um, likely through the dual listings in uh, mainland China and Hong Kong uh, for those that are eligible. That said, uh, we you know we don't think the long-term value of the underlying companies will meaningfully change. Uh, in a delisting scenario, uh, of of course volatility may rise uh, because the liquidity in the Chinese ADRs uh, ADR market may not necessarily travel. Um, you know to hong kong uh, but, but you know we believe for companies with solid growth prospects and uh, companies with you know s- solid business models any share price losses um that is coming from the delisting uh should be recovered once the mainland china investors gain access to these shares it, and again you know we believe this self you know self-economic interest of each country will keep any worst-case outcomes uh, at bay when it comes to delistings. Even even if it becomes um, you know, sort of m- more difficult for U.S. investors to invest in Chinese assets and also vice versa, the capital flows will likely continue between the two countries. Uh, and China will generally, I think, continue on its path of opening up its financial markets. So for investors who want exposure to China in the near term but also want to avoid these delisting risks and and the volatility that comes with that. I think there are ways uh, to do so. For example, you can focus your investments on sectors that are are tied to China's long-term growth priorities, which will be less exposed to any domestic uh, regulations, and also maybe avoiding any sectors that the US could see um, as a national security threat.
0: All right, well, Salita, thank you for that perspective on this. Well, you know, one of the great joys for me is to talk to the U.S. team in the U.S. and soak up all the views there and then fly directly to Asia and meet with Kelvin and the team and and hear something that's completely different. So I don't know if we're going to hear something completely different. But, Kelvin, what is the perspective in Asia, you know, narrowly on this listing issue and then more broadly on what's going on with the U.S.-China tensions?
1: Well, I think on the listing issue, I don't think that has actually been um, um, impactful with the clients or with the investors here, largely because of the fact that um, for the Chinese stocks that have a dual listing in Hong Kong and in the US, most of the trading volume is actually in Hong Kong, so they don't see this as a huge uh, impediment where the um, where the Chinese listed stocks are concerned. Um, and bringing it back to um, to a listing in Hong Kong or in, in Shanghai or Shenzhen itself, uh, it's better in the sense that you know it's the same time zone, so you don't really have to worry about what happens overnight that will actually affect the share price. So I think on based on the technical technicalities of that investment itself, um, it really doesn't have a huge impact on the investor sentiment with regards to the delisting of the Chinese stocks. And to be honest. With you, you know, rightly they should be delisted. I mean, if you can't meet the requirements of the particular exchange, then don't list there. You know, list somewhere else who, where where the where you know the the standards are different, the requirements are different. That's all there is to it, right? Um, Asians see the Biden administration as uh, a lot more positive than um, the previous administration, and I think from that angle, they do see a lot more areas of cooperation as well. I think from the uh, from a lot of the Asian investors that I speak to, a lot of them are of the view that um, the situation will not get better, um, not before the midterm elections in the U.S. next year. But what's more positive about it, it is unlikely to get worse because you know regardless of where the markets are right now, I know the S&P 500 is trading near an all-time high, etc. The recovery from COVID-19 from the COVID-19 pandemic is still a pretty fragile and and, uh, fragile, fragile one. Right. Um, The situation is fluid. We don't know how this is likely to evolve and therefore um, the sentiment here is that both governments are not likely to be so reckless as to risk um, the recovery with something you know silly along the lines of more terrorists or you know more more uh, 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 um, protectionistic measures on both fronts. So I think the situation is actually a lot better than I would say you know two years ago um, during the Trump administration in that sense.
0: Excellent and uh you know whenever we talk about these kind of geopolitical tensions i'm always reminded of uh the u.s president john f kennedy who at the height of the cold war you know gave a speech where he was able to bring things back to the common ground that say the united states and soviet union had you know he said look we all breathe the same air and we all want a better future for our children you know so is there common ground here can the U.S. and China come together on things like uh, climate change or or uh, the environment, cleaner air, things like that? Um, you know, are there areas of cooperation
1: where they have mutual interest? I would say definitely. Um, the um, last year. Just around the same time as the U.S. elections, the Chinese um, actually, Chinese government actually laid out the uh, the five-year plan, right? Uh, and in that five-year plan, they basically stated that they want to have um, zero carbon emissions by the year um, 2060, and they want to be carbon neutral by the year 2030. Uh, and they take the environment uh, very seriously today because of the uh, the fact that pollution was a major issue for them um, in the last 10 years. Um, well, right now they've actually made some progress, and in fact, if you look if you look across China, where the uh, cities are concerned, you know, I, I go to Shenzhen pretty often for work, right? Um, and you know, from when you drive from the Shenzhen airport or right down to the city centre, all the all the um, streetlights are basically powered by solar, um, and likewise in 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 Beijing as well, um, uh, from the capital itself all the way down to the airports. Right, so they've made a lot of progress with with regards to that, but I think more needs to be done, uh, and given the fact that China is so big. Um, you know they need time to actually turn the whole thing around uh, but I think they're making good progress and from that end I think there is a lot that they can actually do with the u.s. the Chinese are very advanced in solar all right um, and um, that kind of expertise they can actually share with the u.s. Uh, and in other areas as well so I think green tech you know electric vehicles etc is an area where I think both countries can certainly collaborate with a huge huge potential for a lot of success
0: yeah, Salida. How do you how do you think uh, the U.S. is looking at points of collaboration yeah. like that?
2: Well, you know, I, I think this is a really important issue, um, as Calvin uh, mentioned, given that U.S. and China make up you know, a large share of global emissions. Uh, We do see room for sure for a cooperative relationship in the climate space uh, between the two countries to help tackle this challenge, at least um, maybe in a multilateral context, like the upcoming UN Climate Change Conference COP26 in November, especially, you know, given both countries have ambitious goals. U.S. is looking to achieve net zero by 2050, uh, China by 2060. So. There's definitely, uh, if of all the topics we laid out, you said there are a lot, but this is probably one where there's the more uh, potential um, for collaboration. However, um, I think even this part of the U.S.-China relationship is likely to turn adversarial at times, especially um, I think as it relates to trade, given China's role as a key source of the raw materials needed for the uh, clean tech supply chain, which is really critical to the production of solar panels and, and also high-capacity um, batteries. But you know, overall, um, I think in general, we remain optimistic on an accelerated climate action um, globally, regardless of how the US-China relationship really plays out, and, and certainly see opportunities uh, within both countries here. Um, you know, I think Calvin pointed out, but uh, in our green tech theme, um, we certainly highlight U.S. companies that are leading in energy efficiency, while Chinese companies are leading the global, you know, solar industry and in both some of the largest uh, makers of electric vehicle batteries. And also, our smart mobility theme features adjacent opportunities um, with a focus on EV and autonomous driving. So there are opportunities on both sides. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, cl- if climate is one area with, with the most potential for collaboration, I would say on the opposite end of the spectrum, Mark, is the cybersecurity, which has the least potential for collaboration and most potential for adverse, you know, adversarial relationship, um, especially because U.S.-China relations are um, in, that, in that form adversarial gen- generally, given their limited supply chain dependencies on this front right both governments are have certainly expressed mutual distrust uh, publicly accusing each other of cyber espionage um as a result i think you know oh, investors um uh, you know are interested in cyber security um instead of like trying to go for just u.s china opportunities it's you know it may- for example, to look even outside um, for vendors in Europe, Japan, um, Korea, uh, to avoid, of course, the risk of more bans. So again, breaking down into a lot of different aspects of this relationship might make it more complicated, but I think that granularity about which uh, part of the relationship you're focusing on, I think produces different ways of um, making better investment decisions.
0: Look, all, all, all those good points, and I think, uh, like you're saying, the the cybersecurity issue, however you slice it, is going to lead to more investment, both in China and the U.S., around cybersecurity. And, you know, the funny thing on the, you can, I think you can look at both sides of the sustainable issue, too, because Kelvin was talking about the, you know, the, the solar panels, right? Well, you know, that's less foreign oil that China has to import, and, you know, if hmm. there was ever a conflict between the U.S. and China, and it's, I'm not the first person to say this, but you park one U.S. aircraft carrier in the Strait of Hormuz, and that's going to cut China's growth rate. So China also has national security reasons why they want to get to net zero, which is lower their dependence on foreign oil. And we'll just that's wait brilliant. till this uh, this this focus on climate change becomes a national security issue around you know uh, inv- you know border security around uh, uh, floods or, or other things and then and then energy sources and then it's really going to take off so uh, that lays ahead well you know we're running short on time but I want to do a speed round with Kelvin with all this disruption we're getting some questions we can't be overly specific in this format but you know what are the best tactical opportunities in China? Equities right now?
1: Well, I think there are a lot of um, bottom up thematic things that we can actually do or we can actually invest in. Like, for example, green tech, as we've mentioned before, uh, the 5G rollout in China. Um, even the data centers and the uh, and and the and the cloud um, operators actually uh, are really really interesting because of the fact that you know the data centers and the clouds have actually come off as well. Um, they were pulled down when the whole technology sector was actually sold off in July and August. Uh, but they have actually nothing to do with that. It's more of a real estate play uh, than anything else. And you know our forecast is for online transactions in China to grow to 40% of total transactions in just the next three years. And that's the case. That means that the demand for clouds and um, data centers will definitely increase, right? So that's one area that we can actually invest in as well. There is Fintech in China. And if you're looking at from a top-down basis, you can basically invest in the A-shares, because the A-shares are more protected from this regulatory tightening than the h shares And on top of that, you can also invest in the export companies, because export companies are, are, are again, not really the subject of scrutiny here with regards to the regulatory tightening uh, situation. So those are the areas, those are the things that we can actually do uh, if you're still keen on investing in China.
0: Okay. Well, look, we are over on time. We've got a lot of questions here. We got The good thing is I think we actually have written uh, solid answers to most of these questions. I'm not seeing anything we haven't covered, but uh, if there is something, great, because we want to look at more things. But we need to get answers back to folks in a forum that uh, gets it in front of them. We'll work on that. Um, but for this live stream, I want to thank everybody for joining us and thank Kelvin and Salita and we look forward to doing it again very soon. Thank you.
3: UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only.